Today's scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Please read with me the verses in bold. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I, I bring you greetings this morning uh, from Pastor Daniel. Uh, if it's your first time and you come again, uh, you might encounter a different uh, preacher and pastor. Uh, his name is Daniel Yoon, and Daniel is uh, serving uh, a sister church this morning. He's preaching at a, a church called uh, New Life Fremont in the Bay, uh, another church that God has given us the chance to support because we have two pastors. So thank you for... Um, Thank you for your support of churches in the, in the Bay Area. Um, our passage this morning, uh, if you're just joining us, we're, we're going through uh, the book of 1 John this summer, and our passage begins like this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that phrase, children of God, there's actually two Uh, ways to think biblically about that phrase, children of God. In one sense, every human being has incalculable worth because the scripture says that every human being is created in the image of God. In this sense, all people, young and old, elderly and unborn, athletic and disabled, every nationality and race and ethnicity and gender and language and religion, all people are children of God, made in his image and endowed with inalienable rights. Now, this is a sentiment from that famous line in Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. You could probably almost say it with me. When we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, 
will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty we are free at last. Uh, This is the sense of all of humanity being God's children that is almost universally accepted in our culture. It's celebrated that uh, everyone is God's child. And uh, it's interesting that it's almost universally celebrated in Western culture, and yet uh, the fact that it comes straight from the Jewish and Christian scriptures is seldom acknowledged. But there's another sense Um, There's another incredible way that the Bible uses this phrase or this concept, children of God. Uh, Several times now, I have been invited by families that we've known uh, into a courtroom to witness as friends complete the process of adopting a foster child. Several of these families have loved and cared for dozens of kids over the years, but only a few of those kids have actually been adopted into those families. And inevitably, when you're in that moment, you're sitting in the courtroom or in several cases on a Zoom meeting in the pandemic, uh, the judge will look at the family and at the, at the new adoptive parents and remind them that after today, in the eyes of the law, This kid is as theirs as any other kid that they could have conceived with their own bodies. That they, after this day, are legal guardians, legally responsible. They are the insurance providers. They are the loan co-signers. This kid is their legacy, and this kid is legal heir to their vast or not so vast fortune. And they have as much say and as much uh, claim on everything that is mom and dad's as their other siblings do. You can't undo this most of the time, the judge will say. Something like, this is permanent. This kid may look nothing like the rest of your other kids, but this is a special kind of kid. And this is the sense in which the scripture proclaim that amongst all of humanity that bears God's image, God, for some inexplicable reason, which we keep being told by the scriptures, is his love. Because of his great love, the great love that he has lavished on us, God has seen fit to call a certain group his children. It's a term used almost exclusively in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. These are God's children amongst the nations. And it's a term that gets inherited by the followers of Christ in the New New Testament. Followers of Christ are adopted as sons and daughters of God, heirs to his kingdom along with Jesus Christ, his son. Romans says that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a, a spirit of sonship a spirit of protection, that's a spirit of acceptance, that's a a spirit of whether you're a man or a woman expecting to be the heir of the fortune like the firstborn son would be. This is the status, this is the, the sense that John is using when he writes this morning, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. 
and so we are. And then after making that statement, John almost immediately gets into the idea of family resemblance, what it looks like to be a child of God. Occasionally with trepidation, uh, not as much as I should probably, I'll listen back uh, to a sermon that I've given. I should be taking notes, right, and, and fixing things, but when I listen, all I hear is my father. It's creepy. <laughs> Occasionally, I'll make the mistake of listening to my own voicemail greeting, your own voice greeting people, and it sounds exactly like my dad. In fact, uh, more than regularly, my children will stop in their tracks and say, what you just did was exactly like grandpa. Or exactly like Uncle Lee. Uh, sometimes when we're together, small children mistake me and my brothers for each other. It happens more often the older we get. It seems like we are resembling each other more and more. And John suggests something similar in this passage. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We talked two weeks ago about this reference in 1 John, the idea that he uses when he says the world uh, being the system and the values and the loves that are the motivation and the operation of most of humanity. And John says that the more you take on the family resemblance of Jesus, the less recognizable you will be to the system of the world. People won't understand your motivations. People won't understand what makes you tick. It won't measure up. It's not the same calculus. And I think there's a big question, uh, or another way to say this, a big question that underlies our passage this morning in 1 John 3, 1 to 10. If you flip this idea into a question, it comes out like this. How do I know that I'm a child of God? Maybe you're pretty confident that you're not. Maybe you know that you've never intentionally decided to follow Jesus, so uh, this thing that this preacher is talking about doesn't apply to you. Or maybe you've intentionally been avoiding that confrontation, that encounter with Jesus. Or maybe, maybe there, there was a moment when you said, I will follow Jesus, and there were no fireworks, there were no tears, there were no miraculous deliveries and went on the moment that you decided to follow Jesus. So did it take? Maybe you're not as changed as you expected that you would be. Maybe following Jesus has brought you dishonor rather than praise. Maybe it hasn't been as uh, heroic and romantic as you thought it would be. Maybe you still wrestle with the same sin that you thought you'd be delivered from. Does this mean you aren't a child of God? Does it mean you're not a special kind of kid? Well, if you become a follower of Christ, and the scripture tells us that that happens by faith, that by believing in his death in your place, that the cost for God to adopt you was paid, that Jesus' shed blood has uh, paid the ransom to make those who believe sons and those who believe daughters. And John says in verse 2 that that means you are beloved. It means, he says explicitly, that you are God's children now. 
It's not something that you earn by what you do. It's something that you receive by faith. It's not something that you can lose when you blow it because it's not something that you deserved in the first place. By faith, he says, by believing in Christ's life and death and resurrection, we are God's children now. But he also says that what we will be has not yet appeared. It's not going to be until Jesus appears that we will fully realize what it means and what we will look like, what we're supposed to look like as children of God. Uh, Being, therefore, this special kind of kid is a predicament. Find ourselves in a predicament. the, The more we follow Jesus, the less and less we look like the world, the less and less understood we feel, and yet we're not yet as like Christ as we want to be. Not yet as like Christ as we hoped we would be. And I think a lot of that has to do with our relationship with sin. That's what the rest of the passage is about. The children of God and their relationship to sin. Even though we have been saved from our sin by grace, by the grace of God, there is still sin in our lives. What do we do with that? Christians aren't sinless. This is no secret. That cannot be the family resemblance. I think that's what a lot of people want it to be, right? Uh, How can you do that? You're a Christian. Or I guess I don't belong here because I'm a sinner. But this passage seems to suggest that you can recognize a child of God, and it's not because of their sinlessness, but it's because of the way that they interact with their own sin. And so I want to just take a few minutes and talk about what is that family likeness. The rest of the passage seems to wrestle with this question. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a passage that says the same thing a bunch of different ways. It says it positively and negatively. It says it forward and backwards, it seems. And so instead of trying to go verse by verse, I just want to ask three questions to try to understand the point. And here's the three questions. This morning we'll ask, what are you practicing? Secondly, we'll ask, are you walking or falling? And finally, why so holy? I wanted it to be holier than thou with a question mark, and I'll explain, but I went with why so holy. The first question, what are you practicing? Several weeks ago, we talked about how the affections of our hearts are formed through practice. We said you are what you love, and you will practice and form habits around the affections of your heart. Maybe, for example, you are... We're talking about family resemblance, so we'll say that you're a family that says that you love baseball. And you want to improve at baseball, and so you're a family that spends a lot of time at a baseball field. You spend a lot of time practicing baseball and watching baseball and arguing with umpires and eating sunflower seeds because you love baseball. You are a family that builds habits and schedules that sacrifice and forego other things so that you can form habits around baseball. Or maybe you're a family that says you love baseball but, and that you want to improve at baseball, but what you do is actually just have baseball on TV in the summertime while you take naps and eat junk food. 
It doesn't mean you don't want to improve at baseball or that you don't feel an affection in your heart for baseball. It just means that you haven't changed the practices and habits of your life according to what you say that you love and that you, you desire. And therefore, you won't be known as a family that loves baseball. You will be known as a family that loves apps and junk food because that's what you practice. John has a lot to say about what the children of God practice when it comes to sin and righteousness. In verse 4, he puts it negatively first. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin. He talks about the practice or the habits of uh, lawlessness. There's a bunch of places in the New Testament, particularly from the Apostle Paul, that some people call vice lists. They're tough to read. Lists of unrighteous lifestyles and acts, right? Um, but it's a good example. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives uh, one of his vice lists. And in there, he talks about practice. He essentially says in, ver in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9 to 11, that sexual immorality, various forms of it, is a lifestyle, it's a practice. He says uh, it can become habit-forming. Then he goes on to add other things. He says that theft and greed and drunkenness and swindling others in business takes practice. It's something that you begin to do as a habit. Eventually, you plan to participate in these things and become a practitioner of it. The same is true, although it doesn't make his list in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 6, but the same is true for the way that we practice anger or practice laziness or self-pity. When we build that into the way that we respond by our habits. When John says that he appeared in an order to take away sin, he's talking about Jesus' mission He's saying that Jesus' death saves believers from the consequences of our sin, that by believing uh, in him, he gives, a, he gives you a new heart. And out of a regenerated heart comes a new desire to change. In 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about being washed and cleansed from our sin, being given a new heart, therefore new desires. But to actually change not just to be rescued from the consequences of our sin and be given a new heart, but to actually change still takes practice. Forming intentional new practices and rituals and schedules and habits around that new heart that we have been given that he says was washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that practicing something new is what it looks like to be part of the family of God. He puts it positively in verse 7. He says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. God's special kind of kids will be known by the way they set up their lives and create their schedules and their habits to practice righteousness. While it's still possible to fail and fall short and backslide and really blow it. John says that the children of God are planning and practicing and preparing 
to do otherwise, that their intentions and their habits are being formed around something new. The routines in their lives, their rituals, their habits are increasingly designed to calibrate their hearts towards confession and repentance. That's why we do this in our service. We're modeling and practicing for ourselves together what we are being led to do as believers on our own, but that we're increasingly calibrating our hearts towards uh, selfless service rather than self-advancement, towards uh, repentance rather than self-justification, that there is such a thing as practice when it comes to being in the family of God. The second question, so we're, we're talking about what are you practicing, and the second question I'm asking is, are you walking or are you falling? Um, one commentator summarizes John's, so we, the, the question was, what are you practicing? And one commentator summarizes John's answer to that question by this. He says, if someone professes to be a child of heaven, but lives like the offspring of hell, their Christianity is a charade. But what do we do about sin? What do we do when we do sin? Is every time, uh, every time I realize I'm in sin, am I a charade? Am I a, a hypocrite? Verse 6 says, No one who abides in him keeps sinning. So if I uh, continually struggle with the same sin, does it mean I'm not really a believer? Not necessarily. In fact, I think we find both in experience and in Scripture that every believer will continue to struggle with sin one way or another. Whether it's a reoccurring, besetting sin, the kind that comes with addiction or pornography or gambling, or simply just realizing that we are reoccurring, that we we have reoccurring failure to serve God in our lives. Uh, We'd rather serve our own greed or our own anxiety or our own vanity. So if we are still sinners, how do we, where do we find assurance that we are in fact children of God? That we've been saved by grace? This is certainly the place where I think we are most aware of that statement at the beginning. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared. We realize that we are in this predicament that God says we're his children if we follow Christ and yet we're not yet what we will be. And we need to be assured that in spite of ourselves, we are beloved and that we're God's children now, even though we struggle. Sometimes the Old Testament has a simple way of explaining a complex something that the New Testament makes more complex. So John is struggling with this conundrum, and he describes it as the, as the conundrum of practicing righteousness rather than practicing lawlessness and so on, and he says it backwards and forwards. The book of Psalms just calls it walking. How do you walk? In the Old Testament, how you walk and where you walk is how you live. Psalm 1 famously begins like this. Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, but his his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. 
I think this is helpful for me because it reminds me that there is a difference between falling off the path that I intended to walk on and intentionally walking down wrong paths. All of the verbs in the passage that we're reading today talk about keep on sinning or practicing sin or being in the practice of sin. They have a sense of continuing to intentionally walk down the wrong paths. God's special kind of kids may not walk in sin, but they still do fall into it. They may not be intentionally walking in sin, but they still fall off the path, which is why you can recognize a child of God not by their sinlessness, but by their repentance. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our sins. He didn't expect sinlessness. He actually prepared us for the fact that following him would be a life of needing to ask for forgiveness. God's children aren't perfect people but they are people who are desperately dependent and pursuant of God's mercy. They're people who practice mercy because they are constantly aware of their need for Jesus' forgiving grace in their own lives. I think this is a part and partial to what John says at the, be, at the end of the passage when he's talking about practicing righteousness, and he says he equates it to loving your brother. It's the way that we follow Jesus in taking away sin. Right? It says that his mission was to take away sin. He did it through sacrifice and forgiveness. The family trait of the children of God is not perfection. It's sacrifice and forgiveness. It's repentance of our own sin and, and forgiveness of others. The family trait of God, of the children of God, is not that we are shocked by sin or scandalized that it exists in our midst. But we're grieved by it. Our hearts hurt and our lives are changed and affected by it. In our own hearts and in our lives, we are determined as his children to take away its dominion and its control in our midst. And the way that we do that is by being a community of repentance and forgiveness. I think that, I think that speaks to the last question. Remember I said that I wanted to make it holier than now because as soon as you start talking about righteousness and, and, uh, and lawlessness, it feels like you're talking about building a community that's holier than now. I can't, you know, so many people tell me I can't go into church because the place will fall down if I go in there, right? Or that the people there are, uh, I feel judged by them. Is this the point that God would make a people who can look out at the world and, and believe themselves to be holier than thou? The question I actually used was, why so holy? Why the pursuit of holiness at all? Verse 3 said, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we're called to purify ourselves, not to pursue holiness as children of God. Why does this matter at all? If we're not saved by how righteous we are, why practice righteousness? If we're called children of God, not because of our righteousness, but because God first loved us and saved us through the cross of Christ, why does righteousness matter? Why does holiness matter? Holiness is a biblical way of talking about being set apart for a specific purpose. And that's why the pursuit of holiness, I think, is a family trait of God's special kind of kids. 
Remember, we said that in some sense, every human is a child of God because they were created in his image. There is a, there is a certain wiring of, of what it means to be human to understand something about who God is because we've all been created in his image. And the scripture says that God is holy. He is holy. He's set apart from creation as its creator. He's set apart from brokenness in the world because of his perfection. He's set apart from sin because of his purity, his righteousness. Uh, he, sets, he, he sets apart a special kind of kids by the depth and breadth and power of his steadfast and forgiving love. And the purpose of setting apart a group of people to call the children of God is exactly to put himself on display for a world that needs to know who he is. The purpose of setting apart a group of people called the children of God is exactly to put himself on display. And if we understand this correctly, uh, then it kills a holier-than-thou sort of attitude. We, we haven't been set apart to cast judgment on others or to stand above others. We've been set apart to make God known, to make him beautiful for those who are looking upon and are trying to behold him, to make God known to people created in his image who would recognize his invitation into a relationship with him, into a family that uh, has a resemblance to him when they see people who practice righteousness, repentance, and forgiveness. God's special kind of kids are not saved by their holiness. We're not saved because we are holy. But our pursuit of holiness is one of the most concrete ways that God calls others into a relationship with himself. What if there is a place where people gather not because of merit, but because of grace? What if there is uh, a place uh, where a community of people uh, build their entire relationship around forgiveness and pursuit of one another and service? Uh, these are the family traits of the people of God. And they are designed to be an invitation to a watching world. 